Welcome, everybody. It's another edition of the Going For Two podcast. I'm Brian Fisher, joined by my co-host in a very, very snowy Chicago, Matt Brown. And Matt, I know when we discussed starting this podcast and we were putting together a list of ideas, what we were going to discuss today on this episode was right at the top of both of our list, I think. I, I think you're absolutely right. We, we, when we first started talking, I don't think we totally understood when or how the Austin case and how college athletics and the Supreme Court were going to actually go and work with each other in 2021. And I don't think we realized just how transformational this year could become. We're going to talk a lot about Austin, but I think if you really want to understand what could happen this year, you got to dig back to the last time the Supreme Court got really involved in college football back with the Regents, uh, Regents case back in 1984. It is a fascinating decision. If you ever get a chance to actually go back and, and read it, listen to oral arguments, um, there, there's a lot of briefs filed in this case. It, it was uh, really a big deal, I think, in retrospect, maybe not so much at the time, but it has become a, a foundational aspect of pretty much everything that has gone on uh, with the NCA and antitrust law. And so uh, I'm excited to join uh, our guest today in, in Sam Ehrlich, a law professor at Boise State and, and a regular commentator uh, on college sports issues who, Matt, you know quite well, and I think can give us some terrific insight into this case. Yeah. I mean, Sam wrote a dang dissertation about how this case intersects with a bunch of other cases in, in antitrust law and, and how this fits it not just with college athletics, but with uh, the the legal system and how we evaluate antitrust and price fixing for all different kinds of industries. It's it's an enormously important case. Um, before we cut to that interview, um, I'm I'm guessing a couple of you are probably trying to frantically Google what this case actually was. I want to talk just very briefly a little bit about the context behind this thing. So, like the kind of TLDR of this whole case, right, is that this is what deregulated television broadcasts prior to this case from the 50s all the way up through the 80s there was one college football television deal the ncaa controlled it and they got to pick what you watched you couldn't flip and watch college football on espn and fox and uh you know a whole litany of other tiny little channels there was one game and sometimes that game was notre dame which was cool and sometimes that game was chattanooga and that sucked uh there was really nothing that you could that you could do about it um and it, it, we had this because way back in the early 50s, Penn, not Penn State, but like Quakers Penn, decided that they wanted to have a local television deal and that they were trying to really move away from some of their Ivy League peers and try to become a national power. I mean, they were scheduling Ohio State. They were scheduling Big Ten teams, and and they really wanted to muscle in and model more of a Big Ten athletic experience where you were at academic excellence and also athletic excellence compared to what Dartmouth and Brown and, and Cornell were doing. And that terrified everybody, terrified the Ivy League schools, the terrified schools throughout the country that weren't in major media centers. Um, you know, Penn's in Philadelphia. It's, that's where uh, the genesis of the early television industry was. And they were worried about what this was going to do on attendance. If you could watch a Penn football game on TV, wherever, you wouldn't go watch Indiana was at least that was the argument that that was that was presented here and so that led to the NCAA freaking out it led to the, the their establishing centralized control over everything if you're interested more in the nitty-gritty behind that decision there's a chapter about it in my book what if um but we want to talk with Sam a little bit more about the legal side how the how the courts interpreted that and what it means for everybody else not just squashing the the, the big 10 dreams here of the Penn Quakers 
Well, you know, you mentioned not only the Pink Quakers, but uh, this was a different era. Uh, and it's difficult to kind of comprehend nowadays when every option is, is at our streaming fingertips. Uh, obviously, you have games from uh, really you know noon until really late into the night uh, with, with the Pac-12 After Dark nowadays. But this was an era where there were three channels. And the contract that the is really at the crux of the case. I mean, that was for a minimum of one hundred and thirty seven million dollars over four years for thirty five games. And if, if you put that even if you put that into today's number, it is a pittance compared to what the Power Five conferences are getting nowadays. So it ushered in a new era of college athletics. Uh, it took a little bit of a while. Uh, for that, those TV revenues to really come on, but uh, eventually they came here, and that's really has what led us to today in in the Austin case. Yeah, this you can draw a through line from Regents to almost every conference realignment decision from like 1990 to last year. You can draw a through line to this decision to exploding coaching salaries and exploding uh, stadium capacities and enormous amounts of investment in the college football infrastructure generally. Like this has always been a business and it's always been a big business, but it hasn't been a capital B big business until after just gobs of TV revenue started flowing in. Like we would not have a 14 team big 10 in night. You know, if, 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 this case hadn't been deregulated. There would be no reason for Rutgers to exist. They would still be in whatever it was that they, they were before the big East. Um, so it, it's an, it's an important case to be familiar with just as a student of college football history, but it's also an important case to be familiar with if you want to understand what might happen next. Exactly. I mean, you go back a couple of years later, I mean, this indirectly maybe led to the breakup of the Southwest Conference. But I'm excited to talk with Sam about everything that is going on with this case and ultimately what came out of it. Yeah, let's bring him in now. Sam, thanks so much here for for taking some time to break this case down. I think many of our listeners and many college football fans are dimly aware of what, at least a little bit aware of what what this case decided, but maybe the, the context and kind of the nuts and bolts have been lost to the sands of time. I want to I want to start with this. I when when I when we look at the NCAA now, we associate the NCAA with hosting events, with uh, regulating amateurism, and, and deciding you know who's eligible to play for games and various you know big picture legislation. But in my lifetime, they haven't really been in the in the TV. They haven't been in the football TV business at all. Why were they in that business to begin with? Why why was this ever part of the NCAA's purview? First of all, Matt and Brian, thanks so much for having me on the podcast. I'm happy to talk about this case. It's a very important one, and I think a really important one for uh, for your listeners, for anyone else who follows college football to understand, because it's going to be a really big part of the Austin litigation that's currently at the Supreme Court. So the way that the, way the Board of Regents all came, all, uh, came to a head is that the NCAA decided, they decided, you know, kind of just as... You know, as a group, starting in, starting in the 50s, um, you know, they had this television committee that decided, you know, we're going to tamp down on television rights. We're going to t- tamp down on how many how many times you know, college football can be on TV because we don't want that much competition. But really, a lot of sports were doing this at the time. College football was kind of part of this. And the NCAA is essentially saying, we want to limit the amount of times that college football can be on TV because otherwise nobody will go to games. You know, nobody will actually... Uh, you know, attend college football games, which here in 2020 sounds completely ludicrous, but back in the fifties, it was a very real concern. It was one that the NCAA had. And like I said, pretty much every other sports league had it at some point in their, in, in their existence. 
So, you know, they, they decided we're going to only have um, this one focal game uh, on, you know, on, on Saturdays uh, that we're going to, we're going to televise, we're going to sell the rights to and kind of leave it from there. But University of Georgia, University of Oklahoma, they said, you know what, we don't like this. This is this isn't how we want to do things. We want to be able to sell our own individual television rights. So they filed they filed a lawsuit against the NCAA, against the so-called television committee, saying that this is violating antitrust law. Um, antitrust law, if your readers aren't familiar, is essentially the field of law that regulates competition in business. It's what, um, you know, it essentially forbids contracts, combinations, or conspiracies in that unreasonably restrain trade. So you can think about the NCAA as a group of hundreds of, uh, of, of universities. And the allegations here is that those hundreds of universities are colluding to, they're colluding to, uh, to prevent, you know, other universities from being able to sell their college, college football rights under section one, one of the Sherman Act. So that's where that lawsuit came from. And that's what the Supreme Court decided that yes, this is an illegal restraint of trade. We are going to forbid this. And that is, as you said, what opened the gate towards a lot of college football rights, television rights. Sure. So if, if I'm understanding this correctly, right, it, you know, back in the early 1950s, when these conversations were first happening, I, I know that Penn and Notre Dame were the, the first programs to really aggressively try to get into this medium. My understanding is that television ownership, even then, wasn't really uniform throughout the country. It was still somewhat of a developing medium. Um, we weren't really good at broadcasting football games, right? You, you basically have like the, the one camera or maybe two cameras up in the press box. So, I mean, like when, when I watch highlights of standard definition games from the 90s, I'm like, how the hell did anybody watch this? If you go back and like try to look at what people were doing in like 1955, it would be completely like impossible to decipher. I'm, I'm wondering, as we reach this breaking point here in the mid 80s, is this just the proliferation of television as a medium that that convinces some of these schools to change their mind or were there other things going on that suddenly made uh these individual rights much more valuable than they had been at first because i mean my understanding is like this wasn't really the case with radio even when everybody had a radio nobody was making a mint of college football radio rights right yeah college football radio i mean it was never quite as quite as popular as you know television is today. And I think exactly what you said is, is, is pretty much right on it, where as technology advanced, as the ability to broadcast rights advanced, as the ability to get these games on your TV advanced, there was more, there, there's really more demand for college football on TV. There was more appetite for college football on TV. And it'd be, because of that, the rights became a lot more valuable. And that's, as you saw in the 80s, um, when the school started saying, hey, wait a minute, we don't want to just have one game you know, that we don't really have a lot of control on, on you know, uh, you know, for a week, really, we, we want to be able to sell our own games as, as much as we can, or at least let the conferences sell our games and get much more money based on that. Yeah, I think it's it's important to go back a little bit to 1984. When, when you look at the New York Times article, just on this case alone, it's buried on page 17, section B of the National Edition. So it, it was not necessarily the biggest deal at the time, but it has since become that. When you do go back to 1984, what was kind of the thinking at the time and, and how the NCAA kind of defended it? Like, like I said, the, the schools really just, they, they wanted to be able to broadcast their, 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 their games on TV and they wanted to be able to um, be able to do this. And the way the NCAA defended it is they're saying, you know, we are this joint venture. We we need this, you know, kind of joint competitions to, to survive. And that's a lot of kind of what came into uh, the the decision to a certain extent. And that's a lot of what they're still, you know, using in this, in to this day in the Austin case. And uh, that's really what the Supreme Court rejected. They said, yes, there, you are a joint venture. Joint ventures deserve some level of 
of latitude in, in certain regards, but this is not one of those areas where you, you should get the, you should get this latitude. Let me, let me, let me ask you something a little different. Like right now, um, when we're talking about Austin or we're talking about uh, different legal challenges to the amateurism status quo, a whole bunch of other, we know what a bunch of, whole bunch of other people are thinking, right? We knew what various members of Congress think. There's been uh, various senators, uh, lots of external parties that have been really pushing, uh, you know, leaning pretty hard against the NCAA stated position in, in the recently. Um, I think maybe most reporters, certainly most reporters under 40, have become much more skeptical of the NCAA's position. What was this like in 1984? Did the Reagan White House get involved? Were, were other uh, members of Congress or other governors you know, leaning one way or the other? See, that that really, for what I've seen, is, is a kind of a big, you know, kind of interesting thing about Board of Regents. Because Board of Regents are really opened the floodgates to itself and right and made it, you know, made, you know, put so much more money on, uh, you know, into college football. The Reagan White House was not, to my to my knowledge, involved with this. Um, there was some lobbying by the NCAA to get antitrust exemption even back then, but it was never really, you know, taken seriously. It was never really something that Congress was looking at. Really now, um, because there's been so much money put into college football, because it's so visible, um, it, because you know the, the gulf between you know the the big name schools and you know the the college athletes that are you know, just still getting a scholarship and some, you know, tangential benefits aside from that, because that golf has gotten so big, that's really where, where the interest has been drawn. And that's really because of Board of Regents in large part, because of the money that's been put into the game since Board of Regents, that's where a lot of this discussion is coming from. So it's definitely that, different now. That, that That's interesting. I, I've always wondered... Do you have any idea why the conversation the, the the NCAA never pushed really hard to get the antitrust exemption then, or why that really went anywhere? Because it's looking at things now, boy, that would have saved them a whole lot of trouble and a whole lot of future litigation if this has been resolved in the early '80s somehow. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I can't really speak to why it never really got traction back then, but I, I assume it's you know. A lot of people have looked at what happened with the baseball exemption. Um, you know, professional baseball is really the only sports league that has been found by the Supreme Court um, to a certain extent by Congress in the current flood act to be exempt from the antitrust laws. And the the pushback by, on that by legal commentators, by judges, by really anyone else has been so universally bad that you're giving this one sports league an exemption for antitrust law. I don't think there's really been a lot of appetite to explore that since. Um, and so the NCAA, I'm, I'm sure, I, I know for a fact, they've been lobbying on this for a while, but it's never really gotten traction because it would be seen as, it would be seen as the same kind of special treatment that was given to baseball, you know, so many times over the past hundred years. I'm curious if we go back to this decision, if maybe you could discuss a little bit about the makeup of the court itself. John Paul Stevens wrote the uh, opinion itself, uh, and, and it was really fascinating. The court actually went back and listened to the oral arguments. You have Byron Wizard White, who is probably the only guy up there uh, on the bench that actually knew all uh, kind of the ins and outs of college football, a Heisman Trophy runner-up at, at Colorado, uh, first-round pick, Rhodes Scholar. Um, he, he wrote the dissenting opinion. What was the makeup of the court like that actually decided this, and, and how did that kind of flow uh, into the decision itself? Well, it's interesting because John Paul Stevens is, you know, he, he's really one of the justices that, you know, has really taken a lot of interest in in sports law. Uh, in fact, it really, you, you could you could see his fingerprints on pretty pretty much every major Supreme Court sports law decision that has, you know, that that 
that came across during his tenure. I mean, he 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 wrote opinion in Tarkanian. He wrote opinion in NCAA v, v. Smith. Um, but really, the, the makeup of the court uh, was a seven-two decision, uh, as you said, Byron, Byron White, who had this you know his own personal experience with NCAA, with the NCAA, with kind of the, NCAA, the way the NCAA rules worked, had this dissenting opinion where he kind of attacked the idea that the NCAA is this commercial entity that's under the realm of antitrust law in, in general. So I think that was kind of an interesting thing. But the fact that it was a 7-2 decision, I think, is is really kind of a, a really interesting part of Board of Regents because it was almost unanimous. And aside from White, who wanted to be a lot more lenient on, on the NCAA, which is, again, interesting given his background. I, I, I'm almost I'm almost a little surprised he didn't have to recuse, him, recuse himself, right? Like, it seems like it would be difficult to argue he could be completely unbiased given his close proximity to that industry. Um, I, I'm, I'm curious, what were some of the, what was the, what were some of the contemporary analysis or commentary around, around this decision? Was this something that legal scholars or journalists were panning or, or sports writers like not focusing on this at all? Like I, I, I imagine in the, in the early eighties, if you're writing about college football, you're not, you're not used to following the Supreme court terribly closely, especially about something so esoteric as, as television rights. Yeah, and I think the the thing about Board of Regents is Board of Regents looks a lot different now than it did in 1984. Because in 1984, it was pretty much all about college television rights. And that was really the main focal part of the case. That was really the part of the case that gave, that was the, the biggest kind of headline from the case once, once the decision was released. But now you have... All of this language in Board of Regents, um, you know, the, the discussion of the ample latitude that needs to be given to the NCAA as, you know, as is the protector of antitrust or the protector of amateurism in college sports. That language is really taken on because of the way that the NCAA has cited it, the way the NCAA has utilized it. And that's really what's going to be the big part of Alston. I mean, Alston, uh, I, I just read the 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 NCAA the NCAA brief they, they released today in Austin. They say Board of Regents constantly throughout the entire document, but they never really talk about the the, the television broadcast parts of it because the, you know while that's you know that's certainly a big part of it, the idea of you know kind of this distinction that Stevens makes between the broadcast rights and the other amateurism restrictions is really what has taken off as being a really big part of NCAA jurisprudence throughout the last 35 years. Do you, do you think anybody involved with this case had any idea that that's what the, what, that's what the legacy of, of all of this would be 20 years later? Was this, was this an, an, an accident that you know, where we are in Austin right now stems from this case, or was it on purpose, do you think? I don't think back in 1984 they could have predicted this, because I don't think back in 1984 you, you could have predicted such a big pushback to amateurs and policies. And I think that's in large part because of just how much money has flown into the sports. I mean, I wasn't alive back in 1984, but I'd imagine that's a big part of a, a big part of kind of the, the surprise here. And I think a lot of it's just very good sighting and very good, um, you know, the NCAA has done an absolutely, their, their attorneys have done an absolutely excellent job. I've, I've really got to say of, of kind of reframing board of regents. I mean, this is a case that they lost. This is a case that they, really you know, lost a lot of their autonomy in, but the way they framed Justice Stevens' opinion has been done to really tremendous success. And you can see that in the brief they filed in Austin and, and really in what a lot of discussion of Austin is going to be between the circuit split between the Ninth Circuit and the Seventh Circuit as to how to 
analyze NCAA amateurism rules under the antitrust laws. You mentioned antitrust. If we could maybe rewind a little bit and, and go into the Sherman Act that was really central to this case, maybe give us the layman's version of that and, and what kind of the crux of the issue is in, in this case. Absolutely. Section one of the Sherman Act is uh, it forbids contracts, combinations, or conspiracies that unreasonably restrain trade. It's essentially, you can think about it as, as you know, well, you know, this is a very simplistic way of putting it. Um, you can think of it as kind of an anti-price fixing statute. If you have two stores that normally would compete with each other that are suddenly saying, okay, well, um, we, we both sell DVDs, for example. Um, and instead of competing with each other where, you know, one store is going to sell, sell the DVDs for less money than the other store and in doing so drive down the price or potentially drive up the quality because you got to compete with the other business. You, you got to compete with the other business somehow. They're all of a sudden agreeing. Okay, well, we're gonna we're gonna limit. We're gonna we're gonna fix the price here. We're both gonna sell these DVDs for twenty dollars, and we're not gonna compete with each other, and therefore drive down prices or drive up quality. And the Sherman Act was passed to prevent that kind of uh, those those kind of arrangements because price fixing is bad for consumers. It's bad for labor. It's it's bad for pretty much everyone except for the businesses that are actually involved in the price fixing scheme. It also creates, you know, not monopolies because monopolies are one party, but that's kind of the analogy here where it's monopolies with multiple parties. It's kind of duopolies, um, polyopolies, those kind of things. So here you have the same kind of allegations by the plaintiffs in the Austin case, um, just in the labor market setting where they're saying that the, the various schools that make up the NCAA by forming the NCAA and by allowing the NCAA to create these compensation limits, are price fixing the value of labor for college athletes? Where normally, you know, your top recruit would be able to go to Alabama, be able to go to Georgia and say, hey, if you want me, you have to pay me this amount of money. Or then once you get an offer from Alabama for say $50,000, you can go to Georgia and say, hey, Alabama just gave me an offer for $50,000 a year. Can you beat that? And if Georgia comes back with 75,000, they go back to Alabama and they say, hey, uh, George just gave me $75,000. Can you beat that? That's competition. And that's how it works in, you know, professional sports That's how it works. That's how it works in any other kind of labor industry. But because it's how it works for colleges, recruiting students generally, exactly. that's what happens if you're an undergrad, you go and you shop a competing scholarship. Absolutely. Offers. That's, that's hundred percent true. It's exactly how it works for undergrads with scholarship offers. It's how it works for college coaches. You know, that, that's, because college coaches can shop their salaries around to different schools. But for college athletes, because of this idea of amateurism that the NCAA defends, you know, they, they, they've been able to justify over the past 35 years that we deserve some level of, la of latitude here under the antitrust laws. So, and the circuits have been split on exactly what that latitude is, is going to look like. There's something just very only in America that the, that the that the key legislation in this big legal question about how open market we're, we're going to allow college athletes a system that kind of formed on accident in the late you know out of the late 1800s is this this law from like 1890 that was what like primarily meant to bust up like railroad tycoons oh. or you know th these titans of industry that are that are way no longer part of our lives at all and now this is the the the, the, the critical law and I'm, I'm not saying that that's wrong or that's right it's just as i'm trying to explain all this to somebody that's not just like native in this world, it feels a little ridiculous. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, it's absolutely, it, it is completely ridiculous. It's kind of funny because yeah, like you said, I mean, this law was designed to 
break up Standard Oil and to break up the Rockefeller family and to do all these things. But really, one of my really big research interests and something I just love reading about, writing about is how they've applied antitrust law to sports leagues, because it, it, the history of it is absolutely fascinating, especially when it goes to the NCAA, because of the different ways that they've interpreted this all-important Board of Regents decision and Justice Stevens's opinion and his language in this decision. Looking, looking back on this, and you've alluded to it a, a couple of times, and I think we realize, hey, this is the critical court, or at least a critical court case in evaluating Austin. It's going to be a critical court case in evaluating probably several other potentially upcoming uh, lawsuits over amateurism. What are some of the, the ways that this case has been interpreted and has been relevant uh, to particularly sports fans, but Americans generally that have nothing to do with the NCAA? Like what, what, what has been the other legacy of this case beyond deciding whether Baylor is allowed to price fix for a linebacker recruit? Has, has, this, has this case been used to adjudicate disputes for other professional sports? Has it been used to adjudicate industries that have nothing to do with, with athletics? Has this just been a college sports story? Yeah, it's kind of funny. For my dissertation, I, uh, I did a citation network analysis on the Board of Regents case, and I, I, I looked at just the number of times it's been cited, the number of times Board of Regents has been cited, and um, you know how much of that was actually in relation to the NCAA. And I, I, cl- I closed my sample, and I'm sure it, the, the number is higher now because I closed my sample in January 2020, but I found 639 cases that had cited, cited Board of Regents, and uh, it's 533 top level decisions. So I took out this, you know, like lower court decisions in the same case and all like that. And I found 28 of them had cited it for the purposes of NCAA amateurism. 28. <laughs> cool. <laughs> this, this legal system makes a lot of sense. Well, the interesting yeah. thing about the interesting thing about Board of Regents is, it, you know, like, like you said, it, it really isn't just for college football. It's a, actually you know, quite a big quite a big deal antitrust decision and one that like, you know, as you, as you saw, I mean, 600 plus cases is a lot of citations yeah. um, or a good amount of citations. I wouldn't say a lot, but what board of regents did is it popularized uh, or it's really more defined uh, what's called the quick look rule in, in antitrust law, which is when you're looking at antitrust analysis, there's two major tests. There's the per se test, which is essentially if it's really obviously unreasonable, if the, the contract combination or conspiracy is just obviously inherently unreasonable, like is this really clear price fixing scheme, you can just the court can just immediately invalidate it and say, we don't need to go to any kind of full analysis. We just know this is the type of this is the type of arrangement we don't like under antitrust law. So we're going to immediately find that it's legal. The main test is the rule of reason test, where you, you're looking, you're comparing, you're, you're balancing the anti-competitive harm, so the, the bad things, against the pro-competitive effects, the, the good things that come out of this, where you know, the, the defendant does have an opportunity to say, hey, you know, we have this price fixing scheme, we have this other potential antitrust violation here, but there are good things that result from it. And that's actually a big thing that the NCAA has argued, that the creation of um, or, or the, the creation of this separate market professional sports, where if you have intercollegiate sports, amateur intercollegiate sports, it's a different product than it's a different product than professional sports, and that's good for consumers. That would be a pro-competitive benefit that you balance against the anti-competitive harms. But what Board of Regents did as as part of their decision on this on the television broadcast stuff is they popularized the so-called quick look. Uh, test, which is essentially the opposite of the per se test. It's saying, if you can kind of just in a twinkle of the eye, see that this is, you know, 
not inherently unreasonable, but is inherently reasonable. If there's you know really good reasons why this arrangement needs to exist, we're going to, without full rule of reason analysis, we're going to find that it is legal and dismiss the complaint against it. Um, this 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 quick look uh, concept. I mean, it, it would be kind of nice if we could just apply that to NCAA regulations generally, right? Like, oh, should we have a regulation over uh, the consistency and volume of bagel toppings? Well, let's take a quick look at that, and we can decide it. It doesn't really pass the reasonableness test. It would make a lot of bureaucracy. A little bit easier, but different systems. <laughs> yeah. Sam, I, I think this is everything here that, that I needed. This has been uh, really illuminating. I, I, this is an, it's an important case, right? Like uh, I, this was decided, you know, a, a, a while ago. It's critical to the understanding of the history of college athletics because all of the conference realignment that happened in the early 90s, the benefits and excesses, everything that came before, was part of uh, became was part of this case, uh, and it's been a linchpin case for antitrust litigation over the last thirty years generally. Um, so I appreciate you helping kind of pull back the curtain on this a little bit. It's it's been a long time since this was part of my regular job, and so having a refresher is useful for me. I suspect it might be for our listeners as well. Absolutely happy to do it. And you know, like you said, this is going to be such a, this, the Board of Regents case is such an important case for the upcoming Austin litigation. Uh, if you listen to the oral arguments, which they scheduled today, it's going to be March 31st. If you listen to those oral arguments, it's going to be mentioned dozens and dozens of times. So really knowing the Board of Regents case is really essential to knowing and understanding how that how the, the upcoming office decision is going to work out. So glad I was able to do this. Well, Sam, I can't let you go without discussing that Alston case a little bit more because of how big of an impact it's going to have. You filed a merit stage uh, amicus brief in, in the case to the Supreme Court. I'm curious if you could discuss the rationale behind filing that and, and what you kind of said in that to the court. Sure. The, the reason why I filed the, the amicus brief is I, I, I felt like I could offer a, a different perspective from what the petitioners, the NCAA and the conferences, and what the, even what, what the respondents, the, the, the athletes, are offering in this case. And I really wanted to highlight the comparison between this Alston litigation, where the NCAA is asking for its rules to be, whether they want to admit it or not, to be essentially exempt from antitrust scrutiny through, you know, even, even if it's just kind of a, a very broad interpretation of the Quick Look Doctrine, I wanted to highlight that comparison to the baseball exemption jurisprudence over the past 100 years, where the Supreme Court, and only the Supreme Court, you know, it wasn't until 1998 with Kerr Flood Act that Congress actually weighed in on this. The Supreme Court found that professional baseball and professional baseball alone is exempt from antitrust law. And I think what we have here is really a, a very similar thing, where the NCAA, they're not necessarily a professional sports league, though I think some would argue with that, they're asking for the same level of perfection even if it's not quite as broad as what the, the, the level of the exemption that baseball has, it's the same kind of ask. It's the same kind of, hey, Supreme Court, we want to go around Congress, the Congress who, who, you know, under the Constitution has the power to create law. We want to go against the court's precedent, really heavily disfavoring implied judicially made antitrust exemptions. And we want you to find that our amateurism rules are legal under the antitrust laws from a, a threshold perspective, without going into rule of reason, without comparing it to the anti-competitive effects that it those these rules absolutely have on college athletes. So, in this brief, you know, the perspective that I offer, what I really, you know, ask the court to do is leave this decision to Congress because there's so many bills in front of Congress right now 
that would give the give the NCAA some level of antitrust immunity, but do so while also forcing the NCAA's hand on a number of key issues to make sure that they are giving college athletes, you know, some level of advancement as to what they're allowed to do for NAL rights, for um, for for personal injury type stuff, for you know, insurance, all these different things that the NCAA would likely not do on its own. So that's where this process should happen. That's where this if, if interest immunity, if it's given, should happen. And it shouldn't be the court. It shouldn't be at the stage of litigation. Even if they were to rule in favor of the NCAA here, they should do it so in a way that makes sure that everyone knows there's not a antitrust exemption for the NCAA and for amateurism. Um, so I'm sure Econ Twitter will uh, have uh, lots of happy things and, and, and complimentary things to say about those arguments, uh, and, and we'll be talking about them more. But this, you know, tying this into what happened with Major League Baseball uh, and, and explaining what kinds of legal tests have to be applied here is, 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 is important to kind of cut through that clutter a little bit here, I think. Absolutely. That's what I was really hoping to do with that merits brief is kind of give that alternative perspective and really just, again – have the court think about the lessons to be learned from the baseball exception as it, as it makes its, its decision. And like you said, I'm really curious what Econ Twitter is going to say about the NCAA briefs. I've, I've read, I've, I've read through most of it and uh, I'm, I'm sure they're kind of a lot to say. Yeah. Sam, I suspect you and I follow some of the same kind of college athletic uh, economist type folks. Mm-hmm. Um so I, I don't think we have to, we have to, to, to step out too far into left to guess what they're going to say. <laughs> Well, I'm really, I'm, I'm waiting for, and this is going to be completely inevitable, I feel, I'm waiting for the the, the economist amicus, amicus brief that's going to essentially just be a rehash of Judge Milan Smith's uh, concurrence at the Ninth Circuit, because I think that's a really important economics point to make, and one that I know for a fact uh, there are people that I'm sure we mutually follow on Twitter that are going to jump all over it because the, the audience the audience for that might not might not be uh, might not be enormous but the, the people who care will will definitely really care. <laughs> uh, Sam, real, real quick, uh, I know you tweet and write uh, pretty regularly about sports law issues, particularly as they intersect with college athletics. Um, where can interested parties find you on the internet? Absolutely, yeah. Um, thank you for asking. Uh, you can find me, the best place to find me is on Twitter, um, Twitter, you know, slash Sam C. Ehrlich, S-A-M-C-E-H-R-L-S-C-H is my username. That's the best place to find a lot of my works. You can also find, um, you know, on that, on my Twitter page, I have a link to my academia page where it has all of my uh, scholarly articles. You can also look me up on Google Scholar. Um, all of my, all my works are, are, are linked on there as well. And that's kind of the best way to find me, get in touch with me and uh, read about what I've been doing. That sounds great. Sam, thanks again for taking some time here to chat with us. We really appreciate it. Absolutely. Happy to do it. This podcast is a product of the Extra Points newsletter. Um, If you love going for two, chances are you're you're probably going to love the newsletter too, which publishes four times a week right now and digs into all of the -the off-the-field forces that shape what we're experiencing right now in college athletics. Everything from name, image, and likeness to conference realignment, to higher education policy, to what's going on in state houses, to how demographic shifts and changes in high school athletic administration, all of that stuff shapes what we see and experience as college football fans. And if you wanna understand what's going on, Extra Points has got you covered. If you aren't already a paid subscriber, 
now's a great time to do it because if you're subscribing for free, which is awesome, you're only getting two newsletters a week. If you want all four, head on down to www.extrapointsmb.com slash go for two. That's G-O-F-O-R, the number two. Go for two to get 20% off your paid subscription for the next 12 months. Um, If you like what we're doing here, chances are you're going to really love that newsletter. Use that promo code to get 20% off good for the entire year so you can get everything that's going on with extra points. Um. I'm glad we had a chance to chat with Sam. I, I, don't, I don't think I've actually told you this before, Brian. Like my my first, like one of my first real jobs when I was in college, when I was a young political science major and a complete idiot, and I thought I was going to go work in, you know, in politics or government and go save the world. My, my first job was with the Ohio Attorney General's office and their antitrust division. So, you know, all I did was do like document review and make spreadsheets for like these massive price fixing cases in like the insurance industry and some of these other industries. But that's where I first got exposed to this world. And um, while that did not convince me to go to law school, I, I think some of those lessons and and, uh, and and legal terms kind of, you know, lodged in my subconscious there forever. It's kind of interesting to see those worlds collide and potentially not just change amateurism over the next couple of years, but, but who knows what other industries are going to get caught up in this too. Well, it was fascinating to kind of go back into this case and and do some more research. I mean, think of how much of an impact it really has had on not just the college landscape, but, you know, like Sam mentioned a a little bit, the number of cases that cite it, and certainly is going to come up quite a bit in in the coming case, which when when we talk about Alston and and that is obviously on the docket in March, I I think it could be almost as, as big as this 1984 case was in terms of foundationally changing what happens with the NCA and what happens with the schools themselves moving forward. I think you're right. And what, what, what's wild about that is that we're not going to totally be able to perceive how big a change that's going to be until later. Right. Like I, there's a little bit of a misconception. I think right after this case, it, it's not like schools were suddenly buried in money immediately. Actually, everyone's like media rights revenue decreased the next couple of years because the very first thing that happened was suddenly supply of college football games skyrocketed and it outpaced demand. And, and there was a concern in like 1987, 1988 about uh, how, how we're going to make budget. You know, it, 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 it looked not not exactly like now, but it was a significant challenge. And then of course it goes to the moon and that shaped all of the conference realignment that we've seen right now. It's shaped what an athletic department looks like. It's changed the fan experience. It's changed, you know, who's competitive and who's not. And we've seen programs rise and fall just based on this decision. I think it is the single most transformative event since world war II. That's that's touched college athletics. And you're right. There's a very good chance that the cases that we're going to see between Alston and various litigation around state level name, image and likeness could be just as transformative. If you go back and read the dissenting opinion by Byron White, he he kind of alludes to that, that that boom in money and and how it's going to affect everything a little bit. And, you know, at, at its heart, it was still an antitrust case. And there are going to be different issues that we're going to have to explore uh, with regards to Alston and others. But it is a foundation text when it comes to the NCA and uh, for my money, like you said, it, it probably the biggest change in, in NCAA athletics since World War II. And I, I think something that is still going to continue to get discussed, even after all, you know, we're, we're still going to be bringing up 1984. And you know, I, I encourage you, you know, you, you're able to find the oral arguments in this case. It, it's fascinating to listen to the justices. 
Frank Easterbrook, the um, who is uh, the NCA's lawyer in this case, uh, went on to become a, a district court judge uh, under Reagan. You know, there are a lot of touch points involved in this one. Just fascinating to see kind of what kind of came out of this case. Yeah. yeah. Um, unlike almost every other sports blogger on the Internet. I didn't go to law school and I'm not going to sit here and pretend that I have deep legal expertise, despite me uh, spending a couple of months running around filing cabinets in an antitrust division. Um, But when those cases come up, we will use this podcast and we'll use the Extra Points newsletter to get more perspective from people who do actually know what they're talking about and translate it into a language that the rest of us can understand. You can continue to read the Extra Points newsletter at www.extrapointsmb.com. Um, you go back and listen earlier for that promo code to save a little bit of money on that paid subscription. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Brown EP. Brian, where can people find you? Same place on Twitter, Brian D. Fisher, B-R-Y-A-N-D-F-I-S-C-H-E-R. That is the place to be. And remember, please rate and review five stars. Please give us those five-star ratings. That helps everybody find this podcast. We want more college athletics fans out there to not only listen to us, but uh, give us some feedback. Yeah. Do you have any idea how many Matt Browns there are on the internet? We need absolutely every bit of help we can get in the algorithms to help this one stand out. I'm I'm still maybe not even the most famous Matt Brown writing about college athletics. uh, So we need every little bit of, of push we can get from you guys. Uh, This has been, I'm Matt, that's Brian. It's been another edition here of Going For Two. We're excited about what's going to happen next on this podcast and in the newsletter here for the next couple of weeks. So I hope you join us. In the meantime, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.